Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The Raga Roll on caste and Carnatic music in South India. Our opening song is performed by Vidushi R. Vedevali, someone who, as today's guest write, emphasizes tradition to achieve innovation. This is Sitama Mayama. For today's show, we welcome two guests. Returning to Interchange is Viran Murti, Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And also joining us is Annapurna Mamidapudi, who is currently a visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. They've co-authored a paper titled Raga and the Problem of Ownership, Knowledge and Culture in Carnotic Music which explores the evolution of what we might call the modernism of the classical in South Indian music, and the ways the production of this form of music traces the lines of reformism within the Brahmin caste. By accepting some changes to a tradition, a hierarchy of social class can be maintained, but we'll also discover that changes in the practice of that music from within can also challenge the exclusivity enforced by institutional structures. An example is Vedavali, whose practice has been to return to classical texts to reconstruct ragas through the compositions as they were sung before the 20th century. By singing ragas in an older form and going against the grain of contemporary practice, a sense of strangeness is elicited, which might cause listeners to question what they understand as knowing Carnatic music. Throughout the conversation that follows, our guests focus on two primary difficulties, the constant confrontation between the so-called West and its intellectual influence on social practices and knowledge production, and the liberal progressive critique on all things ordered along caste lines. And perhaps one more problem, the pressure of technological change is ever-present. And at the center of all this is the raga. And although there is a shared understanding of the basic framework of a raga, it changes by being constantly reproduced through practice. Today, beyond opening with Vedavali and the old sung so as to seem new, we'll also hear performances from Westerner John Higgins, M.S. Subalakshmi, G.N. Balasubramanyam, and T.M. Krishna. And while raga is a form centered on voice, we'll also hear one performed on a saxophone, an instrument that goes against the grain of tradition. And now, the raga roll on Interchange on WFHB. When we're talking about ownership, we're not thinking about things like copyright or something like that, but rather we're trying to talk about how something like knowledge or how that is connected to uh, belonging in, in a particular community. And then how that belonging then may be connected to kind of social hierarchy, such as caste distinctions. So this brings up the problem of music and hierarchy, which is sort of the, the title of our, of our discussion. And the question of how something like music or art more generally uh, can be so thoroughly mediated by politics, uh, domination, exclusion, and inclusion. 
as most of you will probably know, there are these the four castes in um, in India: the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, and the um, the Shudras, Dalits. But I think we're now in for this paper. We're particularly interested in the way the elite of that hierarchy, the Brahmins, sort of refashioned themselves in the uh, late 19th and throughout the 20th century. I know you've done a, a number of um, podcasts on the problem of imperialism. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's really interesting in this context is the way in which colonization and imperialism in some ways refashions the internal hierarchies. So what happens in the in the case of the Brahmins is they they refashion themselves to make themselves modern and at the same time in some some way connected to the to the tradition. And and that process is really complicated. But one of the ways in which we can sort of understand it is a kind of the emergence of something that we might want to call like a liberal Brahmin or or something that, you know, who's very influenced by the West. In fact, there are key texts from the West um, that really went into shaping this kind of new idea of self-understanding of the Brahmin. So that I think is where we start, right? Where the where you get this idea of being of modern, and that then makes it such that you know you have to reinterpret your music as as being modern at the same time as as having roots to the tradition. And and so this then can become a kind of silent type of exclusion. Annapurna, I think as Scholars, we try and use these examples where uh, science and law as knowledge and um, a means of, you know, enforcing ownership are not the only ways. And we try and show that, you know, there are other things and other ways and things like culture and, uh, you know, things like sacred and tradition. And these things seem to really elude the science law relation and uh, elude the kind of ownership that science and law bring. And that's why we pick the four people that we picked in the, uh, you know, in our example, that in a sense, they are all struggling with this framing of codification of music uh, into a particular epistemic system within which they have to show expertise and mastery. While on the other side, their audience is now made up of these professional scientists, rational thinking people who, who are still in search of something to anchor their you know, more spiritual, cultural side. So what you have is these four actors trying to mediate this, um, this codification along with the very clear way of owning, which is performance. I mean, you're only as good as your last song. So in a sense, I guess what Miren and I are trying to get at is how the Brahmins through codification of the music of the raga, which is usually thought of as performance, by codifying it, do to music what scientists, in a sense, have done through science to, to any kind of knowledge, embodied material knowledge. In the first place, uh, what is uh, Carnatic music, I guess, and what's a raga? We need to sort of define our terms here. Where is it placed in, in India's history? First, just to, to keep it simple, so Carnatic music is um, usually what we would call South Indian classical music. So that is really a, a key here. And, and it's connected to some of what Anupurna was saying about codification and so on, because Carnatic music has a long history, but, but it's constantly being reconstituted. And so what we're interested in is the kind of more modern version, right, where, where it becomes classical music. I'm going to say it's around 
17th, 18th century, around around that, I think. But I think the key here is the making of a classical music is very much connected to a resistance to colonialism. But But the resistance to colonialism is such that they say, well, the West has a classical system, we need to have one too, right? And so that is when they began to start really codifying uh, in, a, in a new way, in a way that really maps to the West much more this, this whole idea of, of the uh, South Indian um, classical music. And so that is when you begin to have a huge kind of system that is based on ragas, which are, which are going to be defined partly at least by scales, Previously, what was an oral tradition, uh, or largely an oral tradition, is something that becomes increasingly codified. Hmm. And then that codification then affects the practice. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is the Raga Roll on caste and Carnatic music in South India with guests Viren Murthy of the University of Wisconsin and Annapurna Mamadipudi, visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. What you're saying is that there's a uh, there's an attempt to stand uh, against a colonial practice by kind of accepting or uh, becoming the colonial way in some sense, right? So to, to to look at yourself and see yourself as not as progressive or to have not been as advanced as the Western cultures that have uh, begun to dominate the planet in this period. Okay. Yeah. So so it's very it's very interesting because it, there's a double movement here, right? Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, yes, they have to show we're classical. Um, just like the West, but at the same time, they've obviously got to affirm their particularity as well, right? right. Because the, the reason that all of this happens is, of course, that anti-colonialism uh, largely takes the nation as its vehicle of liberation, right? right so right. what happens with, with South Indian classical music is it in some way it becomes partly a, a kind of national music. And so that there is that idea of the tradition being very important. So, so that is where, again, the longer continuous kind of history is also made, right? At the same time, I think as they're codifying, yeah, they are, they are in some sense mimicking precisely the colonization that they're trying to resist. Right, right. You know, what is at stake? Why would we need to engage on, you know, exploring this journey of Carnatic music as either an intellectual idea or a practice? And we see very much that in the first encounter with, with the West, there's a constant encounter with the West that, that Carnatic music has. And in a sense, the musicians are become a kind of a um, you know a place where that encounter becomes visible. So that as a caste practitioner, whether you were a Brahmin who learned to name the different ragas and the systems and things like that, which is the codification, or you were the Nagaswaram player who just could play it beautifully in the temple, the fact is that today we are in a position where one of them, one way of owning that knowledge, which is through naming and codification, has become more powerful than the other. So I think what we're trying to point to is that there are particular practices that, uh, you know, kind of reinforce this system. We have to be careful not to fall into the trap of owning the practices 
while trying to disown the society. There's some place in the paper where you guys talk about a detachability of the practice, and I'm not sure if I quite understood it was the codification that was detachable or the or the practice itself. You know, the playing is something that stands outside of the codification. But are we trying to detach just playing music from the hierarchies? Why does it matter to have a hierarchy of uh, that cares about playing Carnatic music? Or why can't anyone play Carnatic music? I mean, obviously, I could try to learn it. <laughs> Right. So the mm. music itself is something I can study and learn, even if I can't be maybe authentic in the practice. I'm mm. not sure. But I like what you said about this detachability, because this is actually what you're pointing to are very two different kinds of detachability. One is where through codification or the practice of naming and categorizing, you actually own the knowledge, taking it away from the performance of the knowledge itself, which is the singing. But the other kind of transcendence you can only reach through singing. So in that transcendence, you continue to have the knowledge performed, but in some way, it transcends ownership, ownership of that knowledge. It becomes something which you cannot own. So I think these are very different ways in which the, the detachable happens. But I wonder after listening to you, if they don't actually perform the same, uh, you know, kind of evaluatory mechanism that actually is used to keep people in and out of music like if you don't reach for the sublime if you if you don't do the transcendent if you don't have the classical then oh it's just you know popular music right so I think it's music is a fascinating thing to to talk about, uh, and these examples are are really really fascinating too in terms of how they sort of track the the development of this particular practice. You know how how it makes meaning within the culture. One of the things that happened towards the you know late nineteenth early twentieth centuries is the Brahmins themselves started rethinking their their identity as one that could allow like the, the whole liberal Brahmin League that was some kind of organization where they would allow some non-Brahmins as well to come in, right? And if they behaved like Brahmins, right? So that there was a way in which there there was the potential. Now of course still for largely it's going to be based on birth. But in Carnatic music, I think that's very crucial is there's a certain kind of look and kind of demeanor. And if you don't have that, one of the things that might happen is you you could be excluded from the community. And, and when you mentioned, uh, you know, I think sort of jokingly that, you know, you could take up Carnatic music. <laughs> I think that's a serious point because there are, there's a really famous person we could have actually, it would have been interesting to bring him in. I mean, a guy named Higgins, uh, who I think in the 70s and 80s, he was singing Carnatic music. I mean, he went uh, and learned uh, very seriously and sang quite well. But what's really interesting is if you look at him and some of his pictures when he's performing, he's also dressing up like a Brahmin mm -hmm. and even putting these, you know, this, uh, the booties, these ashes on his, on, his, on his forehead and stuff like that. Mm. But the question here, of course, is what parts of that tradition affect the music. John Higgins with Darini Telusukorti. You're listening to The Raga Roll on cast and Carnatic music on Interchange on WFHB. <laughs> Thank you.
part of the 20th century or late 19th century it wasn't really done for men to take up classical music as a livelihood because it was you know it was not seen as something um that would actually sustain them you know it would much better to become doctors or engineers or or anything but not you know take this up as a profession so there's something about the value of the practice within society that hap- that the brahmins had to actually come down into music but when you have to go up the ladder when you have to go into classical which is higher up in the hierarchy it's it's that much more difficult and actually there ms's story uh, is very interesting because she is the one who's not a brahmin and uh, but she's a fantastic performer so she has to go up the ladder and the way she makes that step legitimate is by marrying into uh, the families that actually are reigning in the musical world so that uh, she doesn't look like an upstart and she doesn't upset the balance of codification and by performing the perfect wife the brahmin wife she she can be the virtuous knower and there has always been this kind of a dialectic between bhakti and jnana which is knowledge and surrender you know they go side by side in the discourse of attaining knowledge or you can reach god through knowledge or you can reach him through her to surrender so so ms's root is clearly the one of surrender so as long as she is reaching the divine um so she's transcending caste because she she is just going straight for the divine MS Subalakshmi with Giridhara Gopala. You're listening to the Raga Roll on Cast and Carnatic Music on Interchange on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, and community events. Online at limestonepost.com. M.S. Subalakshmi is born into a family of Devadasi uh, and received uh, the requisite training and singing and, and dancing in that family, right? And so what you do through the through the paper is, is sort of describe the way in which that particular way of being is transformed also. It's something that was good becomes something negative. So this becomes something more like um, a fallen act or a fallen way of doing things. It's not uh, as pure, right? And and I think just uh, putting a little bit of the context of the, the the Devdasi history. I mean, of course, that's a it's a huge story because they were sort of like the Indian version of geishas, right? So they had many 
kind of talents and so on. But uh, what's really important here is they, they become illegal, right? And they're right. considered prostitutes by the independents. And so MS, in that sense, she was very good at refashioning herself into the new mold, right? right. And she becomes, you know, of all the musicians we have in there, especially of that period. I mean, she becomes the most famous with the UN. She gets the Mag Sese Award, right? Mm. Uh, and and she comes to sort of represent the nation. And you can see pictures of her with, you know, um, Gandhi really liked her singing. And, and, you know, and Gandhi is not a South Indian, right? And so, and uh, Nehru, I mean, so she really comes to sort of represent the nation. And this tells you something, you know, how in some ways the pure woman becomes the represent representation of the nation. But she was able to really uh, cash in on that, right? I think that, you know, one of the things about the music itself is that you hear stories of, you know, when there were performances that the, the artist never actually spoke. Speaking about music was not considered something um, desirable even. Mm. The proof of the pudding was in the singing. So you had to just sing. She's singing at a time when the nation is going through its birthing pangs and wants to make itself, uh, you know, kind of visible as you know having this culture and and wanting value for it so in that sense when i think of ms's life and i read the you know her biographies and even heard stories about her it, it's quite clear that she retained many of her aesthetic practices that came from her upbringing while transforming them into virtuous practices in the brahmin households mm -hmm. Prayer, for example, is something that, you know, both did, both communities did. They were both, they both belonged to the temple. So here it was the woman, there it was the man who was the priest, but, you know, they had this commonality. So one way she could be Brahmin while not completely shedding her Devadasi origins was to be devout and perform devout uh, devotional music. But in the move that was happening in, with the male singers to make it a more uh, a kind of an epistemic knowledge space where you had to do these complicated improvisations to prove that you you had mastery then it looked like she was you know not standing up to that so there's that funny kind of contradiction that happens there where suddenly the value changes from just the performance to having to name and to categorize and therefore even though she becomes a brahmin her performance is never as good as the Brahmin performance. But as a Brahmin wife, she outperforms all other Brahmin <laughs> wives. But that's the Devadasi in her who outperforms, basically. Uh, I mean, I'm not trivializing it, but you sure, know, yeah. you just see her, and especially there are videos of her performing uh, the UN uh, music performance, you know, when she's singing and the kind of presence that she brings to the stage. You can't think of her as someone who doesn't own her identity in, you know, the best possible way. So there's that. So the ways in which you talk about a uh, a thing being transformed, the way you pr the way you perform the music, the way that uh, you begin to have to sing, the way these things are codified to create a kind of technical mastery, the idea that we create these exclusive ways to perform tasks and to talk about tasks. These are not unique to this particular music. It's kind of the way we shape our groups of exclusivity in the first place, right? This is not that different. I think this is where the framework of the raga becomes important. Hmm. Because in, in a sense, the raga exists only in performance and practice. But at the same time, because it mediates between the talking, the singing and the listening, 
it becomes a more abstract space where uh, which can actually mediate between the different ways of knowing it and i think that thinking of the raga in that sense then helps us see how the music is not static and how it's always changing through performance through the different people who talk about it agreeing or disagreeing or an audience accepting or not accepting a new movement or bringing back an older one so i think there's something about what we were trying to say is about this raga being the framework around which these different ways of knowing are getting mediated is raga then a dominant form uh, across you know all particular types of uh, classes or caste to my understanding uh, raga is primarily there in the two forms of classical music so there is there are two systems of classical music in india and so one is south indian classical music which is called carnatic music the other is north indian classical music which is often referred to as hindustani music so both of these have ragas and and many of the ragas if not most of the ragas you can translate uh, between from one to the other okay. but they'll be sung differently and so that's where the, there's something about the 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 way in which you move your voice in carnatic music that that really gives it its characteristic i'm not sure if i would go as far as to say it's it's national but i think it's very dominant because mm-hmm. you could find a lot of film music like the one you know we we have um, um we sent you for with ms mm-hmm. that's that is a film song but you can see it's set to a raga right and 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 interestingly that raga is based on the pentatonic scale which if you are someone who listens to uh carnatic music uh you'll see that raga in in a lot of the blues right because a lot of the blues has that pentatonic scale as well some rock music for example the the famous elvis presley song don't be cruel is often thought of as the same raga if you are someone who just listens to uh you know blues or 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 that song don't be cruel and then you listen to subalakshmi singing the the same raga you're not going to put these two together uh, you sent me a song that you wanted to play or to sort of set the stage in terms of what a raga is um, yeah the saxophone because that's also an interesting right. guy in terms of inter- innovation because he's playing carnatic music on a saxophone yeah. which again was first uh, raised some eyebrows in the beginning Kadari Gopanov on the saxophone with Balachi Vachi. You're listening to the Raga Roll on Cast and Carnatic Music on Interchange on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits, located at 922 South Morton Street. Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. 
You're listening to The Raga Roll on cast and carnotic music on Interchange on WFHB. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the main thing I, we were thinking about with that uh, example is just that it gives you in a short space someone moving through different ragas. There's a change in the way the notes are treated. I mean, what's interesting in these cases is especially the first two, the, the notes that they're playing are actually quite, is al- al- almost the same. Mm. Uh, and, yet, and yet there's something different. There's a mood that's different about it. That's where the knowledge sort of comes in. Of course, a lot of these singers, I mean, like TM Krishna, a lot of times in his beginning of his concerts, he says, well, you don't need to know anything about raga or anything of that to really appreciate the music, you know? And so there's a, almost, he wants to break down all of that and say, you can have just a direct experience of it. Uh, but there's also a tradition of, uh, of you know, uh, the audience, that there are those who experience the music through knowing the names of the ragas and, you know, having that kind of knowledge. But there are also other people who just have heard those pieces of music so many times that they don't even need to know the name. Mm. They will know if the artist is doing well or not. This is now someone who doesn't maybe have any formal training in music, right? And it's someone who can say, yeah, I can, I know that's, it's that, that raga, but you can't really tell you what the notes are, but you just say, yeah, no, but I hear the, what they're doing is they're hearing that phrase. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I know you, I know you wrote about in the paper that it's uh, notoriously hard to describe, um, <laughs> but you were talking generally about phrasings, like, and how, you know, you can insert and in, uh, certain phrasings, how you innovate within the phrase. Does it matter that this is a saxophone playing these so, ragas or, I mean, is that a distinction? So, well, this is the thing, because yeah. I mean, I was around when, you know, he was first getting popular. And a lot of my relatives, I mean, one of the things they would say is, hey, wait a second, he can't do the gamakas on a sax- saxophone. Mm. How can you, and I, we talked about gamaka, right? The, the ox, the, in the, in the paper, but right, the, the paper. oscillation of the, of the, of the note, which is really important in Carnatic music, right? While, you know, with a violin or something, you can pull the, scr- the string in a certain way so the note sort of shakes, right? And so it's really, you're singing between two notes, and a lot, some were saying that, you know, in the saxophone, you can't quite do that. But you can see that if you listen, that this performer is really, Gopal Nath, is actually trying to, to do this. Mm. So there's a way in which even the, the way the music is uh, perceived to need to be played would exclude certain instrumentation also, like an exclusivity yeah, but that's, there that's too. that's also very interesting because actually when we talk about raga, I mean, one of the things that's crucial is what notes you can oscillate, right? right? And this right. is something that, um, you know, GNB talks about in some of his, the writings we didn't discuss. But mm-hmm. in a particular raga, because of practice, uh, you start oscillating different notes. What that shows is what's so important to understanding raga is the oscillation of the notes. So if you don't have the oscillation of the notes, a lot of people will say it's not Carnatic music, right? It's not, it's not sounding Carnatic. It's, uh, I'm not sure if it excludes instruments, but there's a question of you know, if you play the instrument, you've got to figure out how you're going to do, do the oscillation. So this is where you guys also talk about the decision about what is Carnatic is audience oriented slash gatekeeper oriented too. then. So, yeah, the, this is the this is, of course, where the politics starts coming back in. I mean, right. Um, you know, the the are we talking? Yeah. You know, how is the gatekeeping happening? And that's the tricky part, um, because there would be some who would say, what kind of gatekeeping is there? I mean, there's no one standing and outside the music academy saying, hey, are you a Brahmin? Otherwise, you can't come in. First of all, there is no doubt that there is a hierarchy and there has been a huge oppression of 
a large section of people using these caste hierarchies mm-hmm. and to keep people in their place but in my own work with the weavers for example historically these knowledge systems were passed on hereditarily so if you were a weaver then your son or daughter would be a weaver and so would their son or daughter or their son or daughter now a lot of there's a lot of research that's telling us that before the 19th century actually these barriers were at least in weaving were much more um, you know not so rigid so we know that 80% of uh, what who were considered pariahs used to weave but they don't anymore so there is something about a material practice which requires 10 to 15 years of uh, you know immersion mm. where you have to start young in order to actually achieve any kind of mastery by the time you are in your livelihood years that is hinged to you know how you grow up and the pedagogy that so this universalization of you know education of one kind of pedagogy which then makes every other kind of learning into child labor or you you start giving them these these value and uh, say that well equal opportunity is only when you uh, have one kind of childhood and one kind of knowledge now that becomes very problematic because on the one hand what the brahmins are able to do very successfully is do both so the audience the brahmins and the audience are the ones who have achieved in the science and the professions and they support the brahmins who then do codification of music and and do the performance so they are able to hold both those practices what but what that does in the hierarchy is that any musician who's performing who doesn't do the codification but just performs the music is not considered to be a knower or an owner of the music so what happens is even though there are communities where music is taught hereditarily like the nagaswaram players uh, they they don't enter the elite musical performance spaces so there is something about the way in which these hierarchies of caste work where you have to be able to have access to what is considered the epistemology of carnatic music right and and so when i say what the music itself has to change i'm not so much talking about uh, whether uh, you know the performance changes innovates because that they do in any case all of them do it in any case right it's not limited at all to the brahmin musicians in fact uh, the non brahmin musicians are particularly known for their ability to bring out the deeper sublime sense of the raga but somewhere i think the way of evaluating what is knowledge in carnatic music has to change and unless that changes we are not going to be able to see the kind of inclusion we want to see mm-hmm. and i think what virin and i are saying is that there is something about this raga framework that might actually historically seems to be a you know an experimental site where these things are constantly being negotiated One of the things I think that you hit on there for for me I think is the capacity of a particular class of people to have not only the leisure to work in a way that is not just labor uh, or wage system labor but the leisure to practice the leisure to study you know these are these are real distinctions that are you know universal in the sense of how we are all in these sort of class hierarchies in our particular culture so uh, are we trying to say that raga might have a way in which it sort of escapes that particular rigidity if you look at weaving hand weaving for example as as a system of knowledge now the threat comes 
to craft production from mass production. Right. Now that is similar to what happens with film music and uh, Carnatic music. And there was a time when, you know, Carnatic music had lost out its audiences so much to film music that, uh, you know, people were wondering if, you know, it would even survive. And when I look at what's happening in craft, what happens is they have this traditional repertoire, which they can, and they have the ability and the techniques to improve or to, to innovate. But instead, they are forced to copy their own original production. So there isn't the gatekeeping. There isn't that kind of discerning audience. And so a craft will very quickly degenerate to the lowest possible denominator to satisfy the market. There is something about this gatekeeping that it happens in science. I mean, we clearly say who is a PhD student, who is a, uh, you know, who has got an MA, who's got a BA, who's passed his uh, fifth standard. I mean, we are doing this evaluation all the time. This is not something we do only to music, gatekeeping. So I think that it's a little bit more complicated than, you know, the caste system is creating a problem. It is, there is no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But we also have to look for ways to fix the problem. And I wonder if just looking at caste is something that's going to, you know, help us move out of this problem and allow it to function the way it should, which is to be available to anybody who wants to practice it. I think we can go into the uh, GNB real quick here because I think this is part of that conversation where he talks about the sort of mass orientation of, of music that happens right. during his period. GNB with Shri Subramanyaya Namaste. You're listening to the Raga Roll on Cast and Carnatic Music on Interchange on WFHB. <laughs> That one's hard for me. Um, it's <laughs> the use of the voice in a in a way that I'm not used to, right? In a way that that sounds uh, like it's running things together that I don't quite know how to pick out. Like my ears are not they're not ready for that. Yeah, so I think that's a, a good uh, description of, of one of the difficulties of of um, I guess listening to, to Carnatic music is is because I think the gamaka is sort of unique to Carnatic music, or at least the, that extent of it. Because when you oscillate between notes, you often think, well, in Western classical music, that might even be considered as going off key or something like right. that. I chose this particular selection because um, it 
uh, illustrates what GNB became really famous for as a, as a practitioner, and that is that that very fast paced mm. singing called the briga, a specific kind of gamaka, which you hear him that there's a, an extreme s- speed, right? Mm-hmm. And that you know really took the uh, the Carnatic world by storm, and a lot of people thought of him as and initially were were a little skeptical of what he was doing, whether he was going off the raga, you know, whether he was bringing notes that you, you shouldn't be singing in a, in a raga or phrases that, you know, and, and yet what it eventually meant is that he expanded how we, how we conceive of the raga. So there was a way in which his innovation then became reconstituted as, as, a, as a kind of tradition, almost like a, the classic dialectic between structure and agency. This was someone who had actually written um, a fair amount on, on Carnatic music, and so I could examine some of what he writes. And when, he, and when you look at his writings, one of the things, as, as you mentioned, um, he's sort of concerned about, you know, what we could say the commercialization of the music and, and what happens to the music when it's dependent on, you know, the appreciation of the connoisseur and the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, can it get watered down? And what's very interesting is what people were sometimes, they, they were sort of accusing him of doing that, that, that very thing, right? Because, you know, singing all this fast-paced stuff, you know, is, this, is it just to please the audience? And yet now... A lot of what he's doing has, has become commonplace. Uh, every, the speed singing, of we, we, you know, the number of examples we could give today where people are doing very similar things. So mm. that, that, and so this is why in Carnatic music, there are people who sometimes speak of a pre-GMB era and a post-GMB era. So, mm. so, so he had that kind of a transformative uh, effect. I think this is the, true in a lot of art, right? You, you try to you do something new and, and it's got to be both new and in some way accept it. If it's not accepted, well, then you're just going to be mar- marginalized. And I think he sort of, in some sense, was able to expand, um, you know, what, what we think of as acceptable in Carnatic right. music. You're not a revolutionary, you're a reformer. Well, well yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question, of, mm-hmm. because it's the question of really revolution and structure, because you want to have the revolution, but you want it to still be Carnatic music. I mean, because Right. What he, when he writes and some, all of that, you can see he's very interested in, in Carnatic music. But what's interesting also is the way in which he then says Carnatic music is universal, right? And he specifically, he makes a point saying that musical, music is like this, it's, it's like this universal language. And what's really interesting there is because we played that first section, which is the Alapana, where, where there is no words, right? And one of the first thing people say is when they hear something like this is, what's he saying? Right. And and the thing is, what he's saying is exactly the syllables, right, right? Right. There's no signification beyond that, and yet because of tradition, there's certain syllables that you sing, right? And and so there's a way in which that's that's where the the music it's a meaning beyond you know semantic meaning. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Raga Roll on caste and Carnatic music in South India with guests Viren Murthy of the University of Wisconsin and Annapurna Mamadipudi, visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. Uh, when you talk about GMB and, uh, and this um, this critique of mechanization and commercialization, one of the problems I think in, in general with mechanization and, and reproduction is that we lose uh, what I would call a, a common appeal to performance 
that many more people might have if they weren't able to uh, put on a, a record or listen to music in a mechanized form, in a mechanical form. One main difference between music and, say, weaving is that Music is essentially seen as a human activity. I mean, even if you see that it's mediated by technology, there is still a human being there who is who is owning up or authoring that music in some kind of way, even if it's just the code. And we don't really, we still continue to value uh, music made by human beings over music made by machines. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we think of music as a creative activity that... Um, is essentially human. And I think that there is something about the way that with knowledge, because you believe that it's something out there that has to be discovered. And that's the alienable, extractable way of thinking about knowledge that, uh, you know, creates a particular problem when it comes to music. But it doesn't encounter the same problem when it comes to weaving because we have now believe that any mode of production that is made by machine, like fabric made by machines, are better than fabrics made by human beings. Hmm. We'd rather have a machine-made T-shirt than have a handmade uh, piece of fabric from, you know, some obscure tribe somewhere. So I think there is this, what the conversation between music and craft brings is also absolutely the value of automation. And it leads very much to the question of what, we are thinking of as artificial intelligence, for example, where the learning and the creative part is always human. And even when it looks like it's not, it is actually being managed by humans, whether it's ghost work or whether it is the operator who's correcting the machine or giving it the right kind of data. So I think there is a lot of potential to use music as a kind of a gauge for us to see how we are Uh, how we think of what is work, what is leisure, um, you know, what is art, what is knowledge. It brings a very powerful set of tools to the table. And that's why I think Viren and I are so attracted to it. Let me try and get at this as well, because the the context, I think, where we're talking about GNB, talking about the the problem of the mechanical, I think there are two aspects. Uh, And and this reminds me of, um, again, you'll forgive me for another (laughs) reference, but... uh, but uh, Benjamin, Walter Benjamin's sure, yeah. um, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yeah, that's a right? classic. The thing with that, I mean, is that that essay is, of course, that, that you know, with mechanical reproduction, there's something about, he talks about the aura of art that is going away. There's something like that, I think, in GMB's concern. But I think the other thing is what's happening to the music as well as a result of that. The crisis of creativity is something right. that he's concerned with, yeah. right? Because he's saying... What's happening is, you know, people are singing ragas and they're just singing the same phrases again and again. Uh, They're not able to, because it's very difficult to really come up with something new after a while, because most things have been done, right? And then how do you, how do you come up with something new? And that I think is, is um, the struggle that a lot of musicians have. But I think, so that's the, the thing is, you know, really how you then keep it alive. But, you know, when you go too far, then, well, people are saying, hey, wait a second, you know, and, and, you know, (laughs) you're... But Viren, it's also about where the perceived threat is. So I think that, you know, all the four cases we picked, they they are responding to, you know, the contingencies of their time and where they perceive the threat. Yeah, so where would you say the threat is for GNB then? I think that GNB is is really, I mean, transitioning into uh, the performance space, you know, the entertainment space, as against, you know, the devotional. Mm -hmm. So... 
the question is what kind of values do you bring to to get people to come into this space when they are looking for entertainment between 6 and 8 in the evening <laughs> and right. you have to start thinking of okay you need the speed you need the good looking rock star and you know there, there's a lot of things that go with this thing of drawing this new audience in the cities uh and having to be intellectual but but also producing this very traditional music i mean i think that that's what he struggles with yeah i think i think yeah and so that's something we we talk a little bit about in the paper but we didn't talk in our about in our discussion is really the transition of space right that's happening here that it's moving the 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 music is moving from temples and courts right. to concert halls or what is what are called sabas right. and that is really part of the commodification of this music so what's really i mean i think dnb is an interesting case here because he's one of the people who becomes a kind of i almost like an idol a pop star or something right like, yeah, is, right yeah, but but you know obviously he would probably not like that <laughs> label but and yet he's writing sort of critically of that he's saying oh well but well, this could be bad right because this could mean that we start playing to the gallery and we shouldn't be doing that so right. he's talking about the autonomy of art i think anna perna mentioned this as well the distinction between the entertainment and the devotional um is an important one here and it made me think of um you know when you, when you think about the commodification of it and the commercialization of it or as you say playing to the gallery you know the idea of how you make those choices then is changed right how you make the the choice to play a certain way or innovate a certain way or not innovate a certain way because it it's it's restrictive uh, on whether it it's popular or not sells or not if you are singing in a temple and if you are producing a particular kind of music and and your patron is a particular kind of person then what you would need to do might be something like compose music in his honor and that's the thing that uh, will get you uh, an audience and will get you a support right right but what is happening here is that now suddenly you have this unit ticket sales you each fellow has to come and put in his 10 bob on the table and the threat is is not so much something that is coming from moving away from the devotional space but it it's coming from having to face this very new way of performing mm. and uh, still staying in some way you know karnatak T.M. Krishna with Porumbok. You're listening to the Raga Roll on Cast and Carnatic Music on Interchange on WFHB. Porumbok unak illa porumbok enak illa porumbok uruk porumbok bhumik porumbok unak illa porumbok enak illa porumbok uruk porumbok bhumik porumbok unak illa porumbok enak illa porumbok uruk porumbok bhumik porumbok unak illa porumbok enak illa porumbok uruk porumbok ஊர் பொறுப்பு இயற்கைக்கு பூமிக்கு பொறு
I love that song, by the way. The yes, yeah. and I'm curious, why do you love it? If I compared it to GMB, where it was fast and I didn't understand any of it in the sense that I didn't know how, where it was coming from, what it was trying to do, if it was trying to do anything other than be that sound, uh, <laughs> this I know has intention. And, but at the same time, it, it has space, it has a certain kind of rhythm that allowed me to sort of be inside of it. So there is this um, opening up of the music and, and also the context is very clear and the political context is also very, yes. is made very explicit. Right, right, yes. right, right. So exactly the, the, the culture that you need to see it embedded in is obvious. Right. I think what's, what's interesting um, in, in his case is one of the things we talk about is we don't really have a modern movement, a modern art movement in Carnatic music, right? Where, where the art form begins to question itself, right? I mean, and this is something you have in Western music with, you know, really famous compositions like John Cage's, right? Mm -hmm. Four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, where the, one of the questions that are, that are being posed is precisely, well, what is music itself? And I think TM Krishna sort of goes in some, to a certain extent, poses these kinds of questions. As we were just saying, he expands the canon to bring in like these very contemporary political issues while keeping to the Raga form, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing we could say about him is also uh, the, the very clear critique of caste and gender and even he would say uh, a vocal centrism, right? So he wants to say one of the things he wants to criticize is that Carnatic music is too based, focused on the voice. But I think just to say one more thing, I think we give the example, you know, him doing a whole concert of just an alapanas, right? Which is the part that you heard with GNB with no words. Right. Uh, so it's interesting. It's almost the opposite of what we saw here, where you have the, the words being fairly important. So he's really trying to make music think. Uh, in a way that usually it's not, you're just supposed to listen. And he wants to say, no, 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 I want you also to think. What is interesting here is that the threat that he perceives is from inside the community of musicians themselves and the listeners. So he, he is clearly trying to break out of what he sees as a very stagnant um, approach or a space which is not allowing for a more universal kind of appeal. And so he he points to its uh, undemocratic ways and it's, you know, that it has these very, very strict forms and of behavior and performance. And so basically he tries to break out of these things because, and of course, then it offends, it clearly offends the people who hold those things very dear. You know, his background is is deeply traditional, though. Like, he comes out of this uh, music academy, right? Uh, which you call okay. the center of Carnatic music orthodoxy. So he would be yeah. offending a lot of people coming out of the orthodoxy, right? Well, I mean, and the thing is, uh, he's an interesting figure because, you know, so he had a very traditional training. And, and also in the, the early period already, though, uh, he and a number of other uh, Carnatic musicians were were trying to make the music more accessible to a younger audience because there was a perceived threat around the 80s, I think, the 80s and early 90s. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of them were thinking, well, the younger generation is not really getting into it in the same way because partly the topic of the, the music is, is religious and the younger people may not be that into that, mm. that kind of stuff. And so he was trying to get into that, that kind of education and so on. And then as his career grew, he was like all set to be one of the, the top singers. I mean, he was one of the, the, the top singers. I guess he, he still is. But then he suddenly says, I'm not going to be singing at the Music Academy anymore. And, you know, he goes against very, very publicly denouncing 
uh, a lot of what the music academy is 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 doing hmm. and so um because you know, of so its relation to the caste system in particular yes, because okay. of the caste system you yeah. would also add gender okay um you would say all oh, there are all kinds of issues also the idea of the sort of looking down on maybe the instrumentalists mm -hmm. all these kinds of things put together and and so what then he's trying to do is uh open up carnatic music while at the same time letting it still be carnatic i mean i mean one of the interesting things about him I and mean, he's all over youtube but i mean right. he has some of the best um really discussions of um carnatic music in terms of trying to explain it to the uninitiated but i think what is i mean if you look at the historical journey of these musicians then this seems to be another encounter with the west and because this is clearly um you know issues this liberal left thinking mm. is something that comes to us from uh you know very modern ideas of what is art and what art should do and uh, so in a sense i wonder if you know in a different way this is not just making us visible to an audience to which we were maybe invisible to but isn't that something that you know we critique with older musicians and older ways of doing you know encountering the west so there's this constant double thing of having to be visible in order to be valued but then you fall into the trap of using the parameters of judgment that will make you visible and not your own parameter so that is something that i think he struggles with yeah i think there's a there's a tension i mean because on the one hand um he's somewhat critical of the overly religious um dimensions of carnatic music right and he's sort of saying that that's smothering the music so in that sense there it seems like he's liberating he wants to liberate the music i mean he's almost seeing sort of in like like gnb the the kind of the crisis of creativity is one of the, is one of his concerns but there's another side where as we see in in the, the the example where you have now bringing in new lyrics and whether and and the concern of those lyrics almost becoming more important than the music i mean i mean that's the tension That's our show. We'll close with more of TM Krishna's Porambok. The video for the song on YouTube contains English subtitles. Some of these lyrics are Porambok is not for you nor for me. It is for the community. It is for the earth. Porambok is in your care. It is in mine. It is our common responsibility towards nature, toward the earth. Thanks to Veer Murthy for suggesting this program and special thanks to Annapurna Mamidipudi for staying up well past her bedtime to lend us her wisdom from Germany via Zoom. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Chan, Chan,